Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Linnea Engström. Linnea worked as a Green member of the EU Parliament for five years. She has written a book on climate justice and feminism. She was elected first vice chair of the Committee on Fisheries and is currently working as program director at the Marine Stewardship Council. During this conversation, we will discuss climate, feminism and oceans governance for sustainability, but also learn about her engagement in politics and in civil society. Hi, Linnea. Welcome. Hi, Sonia. Hi. Thanks for being here. This podcast is called Sweden in Transition. What do you think is changing or needs changing right now? There is a lot going on, right? There is a whole movement transforming society right now all the way from Greta Thunberg and her young people in the streets raising their voices to big industry facing out fossil fuels. And I think it's an amazing force. I mean, on all levels. So what needs to change? We need even more of these engagements right now. We need this kind of wave of enthusiasm. Even though we are experiencing very challenging times right now with isolation, with loneliness, with people losing their jobs due to this pandemic that we're still in, I think people feel that, at least I, I try to see all of these positive movements right now. Before we start, I'd like to know a little bit more about you, how you came to work in politics in the first place. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> I grew up in a family where we always had these very, very strong discussions about uh, the Bush administration. So I'm born 81. It was the Iran and Iraq war, I remember. My parents got divorced when I was seven years old. And then uh, my mother met a refugee from Iran. And we were always discussing gender equality, power structures, global challenges uh, with the United States uh, going into different countries. So I grew up in this vivid environment. So I've always felt like a very political person, I think. Yes. And during your mandate at the EU Parliament, what topics did you work on? I ended up in the fisheries committee and I say ended up because I was a substitute. So I got in after our current spokesperson now for the Green Party, Isabella Levine. So I got into this amazing world of ocean governance, of fisheries, heavy industry and very, very strong NGOs on the EU level. And I just started loving it. I threw myself into these topics and I was a part of each and every legislation in that field for five years. But the reason why I wanted to be a candidate was gender equality and climate change. So I was very, very much into these human rights perspective of climate change in a technical sense, the adaptation work that needs to be done in order to adjust a whole society to a changing environment, changing climate. And what were the highlights of those five years? There were many highlights, but definitely I got to be solely responsible for a legislation. So when I got to finish that legislation, that was an amazing moment. So all of these stakeholders, 28 member states, uh, the European Commission, the industry, the NGOs, the council, to get all of them on board and to sign the, the new law, that was a highlight. That was amazing. 
And I also led a very important delegation to Thailand to try to address the horrible use of slaves in the fisheries sector and to try to change their behavior of overfishing in the sector. So those two moments, they were amazing moments for me. Explain us how it works. What does it mean to be a member at the EU Parliament when you are elected? So it's, it depends a lot on which committee you end up in. If it's a legislative committee or if it's a non-legislative committee. So EU has solely competence in some certain areas, like climate and fisheries, for example, and is only doing some opinion pieces, let's say, in gender equality or foreign affairs. So it depends. I think legislative work is very tedious. It's kind of heavy. It's more fun to get a paper out with some sexy language on women's rights. That, of course, you want to do as well, because it gets you a lot of kicks to get your work out quickly. But legislation, that's what changes society, right? Of course, you always have to get other groups on board, especially if you're a green member. So you're a bit lonely <laughs> because you're in a small group. So you always need to get the socialists on board and preferably both socialists and conservatives. So they vote in favor of your proposals. So it's a lot of networking, a lot of work to be friendly to people so they like your ideas, using different arguments to get them on board. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. <laughs> I think it was very important for me also to go out, meet real fishermen, for example, in my area, or to visit women that lived in a rural area where you would have severe difficulties of transitioning from a fossil fuel dependent industry to a renewable energy industry. So you have to meet a lot of people, you have to go out on delegations, for example, to see, to smell it, to really stand there where the action is. So that takes a lot of time, of course, many, many hours of paperwork and tedious meetings with negotiations. And of course, you also have to go back to your own group and tell them what you're doing. And then you have your party at home, in your home country, which also have to know what you're doing. It's a very overwhelming task, let's say, but it's super fun. And if you have a good team around, you can be very successful. The most important group to have on board when you're a green member is, of course, the NGOs, because they will support you. They will support you in media. They will sell everything broadly to other stakeholders. That was one also very important work. I was in the China committee as well. On fisheries, we didn't have a dialogue. And China being this massive power today in society and the immense impact that those Chinese vessels have, for example, in Global South and in Africa, that was the main goal, I would say, to get a dialogue, at least a dialogue going with the Chinese government on sustainability, because they would acknowledge that there was even a problem with overfishing. And we know that some African countries are, fish stocks are severely depleted already, like really, really poor countries in West Africa that are suffering from these monster trawlers going there and fishing illegally. So that was a very, very important work, I, th I think. If you want to work at the, the EU Parliament, what's the profile? As far as you're concerned, you did a master's degree in political science, right? It just happens for me. It's not something that I plan. 
I always found myself in situations where I would stand with my fist in the air, like really advocating for a position. I've never been especially strategic. I just go for what I feel like. So I'm very emotionally driven and passionate. It was never my intention to end up where I did. And campaigning, what does it imply? It's very important to be a part of the team. I mean, uh, since I was a bit further down on, on the list, I always took the debates that no one else wanted to take, I think. I remember very well this very conservative association. So there were two very conservative men and myself. But I thought I just had the best time ever. I just threw myself out there. I was talking about Russian oil and gas and like climate change. And I think it's still like a very, very nice memory for me that I was so bold and so naive and just threw myself out there and, you know, took any chance basically to talk about these important questions that I like. And I think still naivety is a really strong asset when you're a politician. So many people think that politicians should be, you know, experienced and old and stable. But I have to say that when you're young, you're always a bit unafraid. I always advocate for young politicians or, or you know, naive politicians or, or person that you wouldn't expect in this setting because it's disruptive, right? And when we're talking about transitions or environmental challenges, we need disruption. We need to break away from the old stuff. And question the status quo. Yes. Some people are not able to take a step back and see things differently. Yes. How does it work behind the scenes? Did you have positive and more negative surprises? The backside of being this happy, naive advocate for ideological matters is that you end up being <laughs> hidden in the head almost with reality, right? After a while, you end up in very, very hard conflicts between different goals. One very hard conflict is the one between biodiversity and climate, for example. So, so that was hard. I never expected that the internal politics would be so hard. So, of course, you would have disagreements with someone from another political party. But you could have really, really hard discussions also internally with your own party or with the other green members of, from other green parties in Europe. That was really challenging. Do you have an example of uh, how climate and biodiversity can conflict? Yeah, so we have a very intensive debate right now about biofuels, right? And that legislation was put in place during my time in the parliament in 2017. So I would get these calls from different interests. Please do like this. No, you do, you do like this. I was really squeezed in the middle of big industry and uh, green hardcore NGOs, let's say. And it was very difficult. Biofuel is a good example of complex subjects. Yes. Now, moving on to uh, the oceans. Yes. And you, you wrote a report on the Blue Commons. It's a critique of the EU Blue Growth Strategy. Can you tell us more on that? Yes. So I'm now in a very market-driven eco-label setting uh, where I'm a program director. So I thought it was very important to spur a discussion there on local communities and who actually owns these resources that we're fishing. Because, of course, one of the most important challenges is to get more sustainable fishing in the global south. But when we go into a country and try to change things for the better, 
local populations might get squeezed in between. That's very vivid, I think, in many places. So I wanted to spur this discussion because this was something that I felt very deeply engaged with when I did this whole legislation on EU external fisheries, that I could see that I came to a poor country as an EU representative and the EU fishing had a very, sometimes a very negative uh, impact on local communities. Was that the fault of the EU? Not, not necessarily, because these are weak states, they're weak governments. Their own politicians in these countries don't necessarily take into account the local population. But that was a very strong case, I think, that I tried to advocate for in the Fisheries Committee, that we should take a stronger responsibility and a stronger stand for these local populations, and especially for women. Women are t completely invisible in fisheries, usually, although they are 50% of the workforce in many places. I thought it was very important to get this debate into a market-driven eco-label like MSC. Um, yeah, because introduce what you're doing now. I'm a program director for Marine Stewardship Council. We certify fisheries. When they are certified, they need to work on their conditions. And if they don't improve during a five-year cycle, they lose their certification. It's about keeping this certification that they paid a lot for. On the report, you have different uh, sections. One is on blue carbon. Yes. Can you introduce that notion and how important are the oceans to carbon uh, sequestration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many companies now, they need to have some offsetting for their carbon dioxide emissions. They invest money in this blue carbon. And blue carbon can be mangroves, for example. Mangroves just absorbs so much carbon dioxide, much more than forests do. But of course, there's this chopping down of mangroves of, of local populations because of the, of the need of wood, for example. So this is a way of conserving these big mangroves and potentially also reintroducing them in some areas where they were cut down. This is very promising to some extent. There are some negatives of this carbon offsetting, of course. One can say that it also spurs even more emissions then. So big companies can just pay kind of a ransom to buy a mangrove somewhere. And then it's fine, right, to, to emit even more. Once a company just declares that they're doing some carbon compensation, then they're under scrutiny. NGOs and civil society will make sure that they're also decreasing their impact from the I start. I hope so. Yeah. You also speak about blue bonds. Yeah, I've tried to increase this work in my own organization now because I think it's so extremely important that the financial sector takes on the sustainability challenge. So you can see it coming to some extent. You can see some more green bonds popping up. You can see like really good examples like World Economic Forum. They placed climate change like the top risks for almost all businesses mm -hmm. worldwide. Of course, it's coming along, but you know, you want to see more progress. So I think blue bonds is a way of, of trying to introduce also ocean sustainability within these green bond framework. So I was a part of this um, cooperation with the Norwegian bank because, of course, fisheries is huge in Norway, trying to engage with a lot of banks to get them to do even more MSC in their green bond frameworks as a proxy, for example. Then that would spur investment to sustainable fisheries and make it sort of 
more difficult to get investments for unsustainable practices. But I would say that COVID put a, a little bit of a lid on, on all of this. It's been difficult. We talked a little bit about women's rights in fisheries. I don't know if you want to add anything on that front. I mean, if we talk about a, like a broad approach to climate justice, for example, there is just this total lack of understanding of how local communities are built up with, you know, over 60% of farmers in sub-Saharan Africa being women because of this gender division that we have in societies and just the way that we construct our climate finance. It has to go for adaptation needs to these women and we have to empower them. All these kind of gender equality demands that have been going on forever, like the right to sexual and reproductive health, to your own economy, to own land. All of these things are even more important now in the light of climate change because we can see that we have so rapid changes everywhere and we're losing agricultural land. Those most marginalized in these societies are the ones who are taking the hit right now. So I think that's also very obvious in fisheries. I was confronted with these situations where you would have massive overfishing, women losing out on their livelihoods because usually they are the processors. They take the raw material and the process it at shore. When there is no raw material because of overfishing, because of local fishermen not gaining anything or gaining very, very little, they don't get access to raw materials. And then they have to start selling themselves instead. So it's this really, really horrible spiral that increases violence and atrocities against women and just very very small sums can lift them up i mean it's it's not we're not talking about a lot of money we're, we're rather talking about money and empowerment at the same time mm -hmm. and the last section of your report is called blue commons versus blue growth well blue growth is still from an eu perspective you would have investments in a blue growth, which is actually deep sea mining, destroying the oceans or gas and oil extraction, which is also, I mean, completely de detrimental to the whole Green New Deal that's going on right now. So I think th this is something that, you know, we just have to highlight and face out. And fisheries was not a part of the blue growth strategy when I was a par in Parliament. Now it is, we'll see, both aquaculture and wild-caught fisheries included. I think it's insane to talk about deep-sea mining in this setting where we are moving towards a more sustainable society. So it's more pointing at paradox. Yeah. Uh, saying that we need to, to do more green or mm. more blue, but also less brown. Mm. Definitely. Mm. Now let's <laughs> move on to our theme of climate feminism. Yeah. It's the title of the book you wrote, yes. right? So what's the link you make between climate and feminism? Of course, you can make many links. But what I did in my political work was to try to get some language into the Paris Agreement on human rights and gender equality. So that was a, a little text that was voted into the main parliament position that then went to the negotiations in Paris and then... Finally, we got some language in the Paris Agreement on these human rights, gender equality, climate justice. And then the next step was basically to be a part of this gender action plan that was put in place in 2018 so that each and every country should work to have a human rights perspective. Again, it's like the marginalized in our societies that's going to be most badly hit when the climate changes 
So when we have a warm summer, for example, in Sweden, it's going to be the elderly or the poor that, that is most vulnerable to these changes. And if you're a rich person, you can always sort of, in a market economy, buy your way into fresh water or clean air or something. You can go up in the mountains or you have mobility. But if you're poor and if you're marginalized, you will face these challenges in a completely different way. Women and children on a global scale are more vulnerable to these climate change effects. We need finance to go directly to indigenous people, to women in rural communities, th that kind of language. Do you have other examples of uh, situations where women are more vulnerable or if you take the positive way, they can make a difference more? Exactly. You know, I think it was very interesting when we saw what was happening in some Spanish communities, in rural communities in, in northern of Spain. The coal mine would close down in 2020. And you would have this massive unemployment among the male population. And the female population in those small rural societies were usually home, taking care of the children. And, but those women were actually the ones who were trying to see what new possibilities there would be to make money in that new setting. So they introduced the Natura 2000 area got some funding from the Spanish government to put this in place to restore the waterways and to restore the nature that had been destroyed by the mining. And then also they were the ones who would put up windmill for renewable energy. That was very promising. That was just this green transition that you wanted to see with women getting very much empowered. That was a good example, I think. Do you have examples of situations where climate affects particularly women? the situation in Bangladesh where you would have like really rapidly sea level rise that would deplete a whole village, then you would see that the women in those villages, they had to go into the big city and ended up in prostitution, basically, to provide for their families that lost everything. So that was some clear examples where you would just see these climate change effects worsening the, the situation for women very drastically. Mm. Ecofeminists like Vandana Shiva explain the connection between climate and feminism mm. from a common root of domination mm. by male, this patriarchal capitalist power structure. Can you introduce that notion to us of ecofeminism and then we can discuss it further? So I think ecofeminism really goes to the heart of consumerism and what it does to us and how we need to change power structures within our societies. On the other hand, I think it's difficult to defend ecofeminism sometimes because it's very biologically driven. So you would have men and females and that's it. Modern feminists might have some severe challenges with accepting because it doesn't take into account discussions on transgendered people or the whole important discussion on masculinities and how men are also shaped into these gendered roles and how we need to criticize the norm rather than specific men or my reading of ecofeminism is that actually yeah it's i think it depends that's why it's interesting to explore it's not essentialist no maybe not it's more men and women are different because of culture and mm. how we've been raised and hundreds of years of history because women have been at home for so long mm. in charge of taking care of the family, taking mm. care of the close environment. Mm. They've developed this sense mm. of closeness mm. with nature. Mm. And that's 
interesting to nurture and use now that we really need to take care of the environment in the wider sense. So that's my reading at least. The other thing I find really interesting is that the first wave of feminism that you were mentioning that drove to modernity was necessary, but for the women to get the same rights as men, we had to adopt the same codes. A lot of examples of successful women are men like any other men, like was saying uh, Simone de Beauvoir. And maybe that's missing the point. If it's just replicating the values of, of men, then yes. we need to create a third route where we take the most of, of everything. Mm. I think it's fascinating, but I can feel maybe that in the Nordic country, because this notion of transgender and I don't know if ecofeminism has a, such a big ego. I, this is super interesting. You can see how stuck I am myself in this patriarchal uh, notion. At the same time, I really acknowledge the fact that my experiences are really aligning themselves to what you just said, because... Being a politician in the European Parliament and having small children and even bringing those small children into negotiation rooms, I always felt that work always have to come first. I, I mean, I put work first many times, but I also went home early to be with my kids because it was so important for me to be this close mother to them. This is definitely a clash today. There is no acceptance or no understanding of women not being like men in a political setting. You get questioned very easily when you're a mother in these rooms. And uh, it was fascinating and very tough, of course. Going back to this uh, question of climate and feminism, what do you think we need to push this up in the agenda? No, I was very happy when I saw this initiative from the NGOs here in Sweden that they made a report about climate justice and then that was presented in the government. These issues, they are present in a development aid uh, setting, but is it really present when we talk about climate change in our own setting? I'm not sure that the whole climate regime that we have in place now with both government funding and private funding is gender equal. I would tend to lean towards that it's very, very far from, you know, going to uh, equally uh, benefiting men and women, because we still have this very gendered society where women are placed in very low income jobs. Women should provide care for elderly people and children almost without any payment. Does any of the investments that we now see with climate change even reach women? I'm asking myself. I, I don't think so. And we still build our cities for a man in a car going to his work. We don't build our cities to have a room even for public transport and all of these things that we know that women tend to lean on more. That's what I like with ecofeminism, mm. maybe because I put too much expectation on it. But I think there is a paradigm shift mm. that is expected by this movement, mm. saying that it's all linked. Unless we change our mindset, we're not going to address all those issues. And what you say about care, I think, is a very good example. Today, what do we value in society? Still growth industries that are linear unless we change our uh, maybe indicators and the way we value nurturing roles and caring roles if we don't pay them more they are not gonna ever represent something important in society but our world need to shift so that's why i think it's interesting this idea of changing the narrative
That's why I wrote the book. That's why I wanted to discuss all of these things. And I thought ecofeminism might be a bit tarnished, that expression. So I chose this climate feminism because I thought, wow, it, I like the sound. It sounds like something modern. And I got my colleagues to be a part of this. And I think we did some really, really great work in the parliament, especially with the Catalan men in, in the Green Group who were great. They just took all the hard fights. And it was also this really... A successful factor to have these really good-looking guys talking about climate feminism. So yes, by all means, I think that this would be a revolutionary part. And I remember very well when we had the Greta Thunberg and all of the young people visiting the parliament, and they just came into the room chanting, we want climate justice, we want climate... Uh, it was just an amazing moment. And I thought, yeah, they get it. They will never talk about climate change without justice in it. For this young generation, it was just obvious. There was no hesitation around it. Hmm. Now you work in the Marine Stewardship Council. What does it bring to work in civil society? What do you get from it that you didn't get necessarily uh, working in politics? Big corporations, they basically work outside of politics. Marine Stewardship is a global organization. We have the headquarters in London. We work with big companies like Thai Union, which is one of the largest companies in the world. They basically operate outside of policy, is almost my feeling. It's just like a separate world. So even though I'm in civil society, I feel that I'm invited to these rooms where I was never invited as a politician. And you, uh, being also from, the, from this kind of private sector, you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is real power. This is where the, the business is done. And it sort of shocks me and also excites me that there is so much power there and so much possibilities of driving sustainability. Yeah. Hmm. Context is obviously difficult at the moment. How do you see the future? We need a stronger green movement, at least in our country. We're losing out the momentum. We look at what is happening in other countries and we're a bit shocked that we're not experiencing the same wave of support for green politics. Here in Sweden? Yeah, yeah, here in Sweden and also maybe in other Scandinavian countries. Don't you think it's because all parties here in the Nordics are preempting that subject? Yeah, possibly, maybe, yes. It's also been a couple of very tough years in government where the Greens have been super successful in putting some legislation in place. But why doesn't people acknowledge that then? It's sort of hidden under a government umbrella, which doesn't give credit to the people that's actually been driving those changes. We need a renewed Green movement. What makes you hopeful? What makes you scared? What makes me hopeful is seeing all of the changes that is actually happening when businesses, they see the risks. The one who cracks the, the next sort of solution to all of these sustainability challenges is the one who's going to lead in the marketplace, right? What scares me? Populism. What happened during Brexit and Trump was very, very depressing from a political point of view. I mean, for, for everybody, obviously. But when there is just black and white and people tend to stay in their little bubble, just throwing eggs at each other, not talking. That's awful. Yeah. To conclude, do you have a quote or a book you want to share? Oh my God, I had a quote from uh, my favorite book, On the Road, by Jack Kerouac. 
I hope I can find it here. The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That was a great time. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot to Linnea Engström for this conversation and thank you all for listening. If you like this episode, please put some stars on your podcast app, share it on your favorite social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and send me a message with a comment or an idea for our next guest. Liersch!